Vaheguru ji ka khalsa Vaheguru ji ki fateh can you hear me Vaheguru ji ka khalsa Vaheguru ji ki fateh yes i can hear you clearly Oh yes so we had that little issue just before the start up anyway uh before we start i want to share something funny which happened with me today uh do you know what a child told me today at the gurdwara tell me he told me that the point of all indian religions the highest point the essential point is to acquire salvation by reincarnating as a cow. Wait, wait. Reincarnating as a cow. As a cow and he said that's pure salvation right there. <laughs> you are reincarnating as a cow somewhere in a farm in America and somebody shoots you and eats you. Well, I mean, I think he's only looking at it from the point of view that you know you get milked and you have this good life for a while and you get worshipped. I mean, when he said it, I actually nearly fell over laughing. Still got tears in my eyes from the laughter. Well, don't be too surprised. It's not just the children. They're they're real adults who have such beliefs. <laughs> okay, so getting away from that. uh i guess uh thought process getting away from all this reincarnation and many other uh, similar concepts getting away from conventional spiritualism if i may say that term just to express you know just to give umbrella term for you know all these different superstitions we have in religion that requires a very strong mental process which at the same time is also labeled as a crime you know you're uh, declared a kafir you're declared an infidel if you don't follow that process uh if you don't follow the conventional process but if you follow that other process i'm talking about that's seen as being a crime now that is called a thought crime essentially am i right uh yeah and I believe that thought crime was actually a term coined by George Orwell in his 1949 uh, novel 1984. Well the uh, this this phrase comes from there yeah that's true yeah thought crimes. But I guess when we are talking about the phrase the phrase might be unique but the concept it describes that concept is quite old isn't it it's probably as old as humanity since humanity started thinking thought crime has been around since then. true there are things we are not supposed to think uh, because uh, uh, that may you know go against the establishment now in the last episode we had we discussed that uh, you know shabad from pak that amanand you know the one where he's talking about how he goes to pilgrimage sites and uh, one day he goes to one site in particular and down there he's you know doing his um whatever karmakand he was into at the time and uh, then what happens is that you know in his mind comes this little unspoken thought that you know ramanand what are you doing you know someone else who you believe to be an infidel a nonconformist they're doing the same in their own places of worship what are you actually doing down here now <clears throat> if you think about it how does ramanand go from being a very uh, i would say orthodox hindu to someone who starts questioning his own faith now that's quite a massive quantum leap in one lifetime isn't it well it is indeed and uh, you have to say that he indeed committed a thought crime and i guess one of the other things i've noticed is now you know i read a lot of books and uh, lately my taste has gone towards some um, you know political fiction and leadership and all that so now if 
two years ago, I read a book called 2084, The End of the World by uh, Bolam Sansal. Now, Sansal is from Algeria, and he isn't a popular man down there. He's atheist, and he's actually made comments which have been interpreted as being blasphemous against you know, the Algerian Islamic government. Now, what he's actually doing is that 2084 builds upon 1984, Orville's 1984. The 84 is the giveaway. And what happens is that in 1984, we have Ingsoc. And Ingsoc is pretty much a term for English socialism. Now, what happens is that English socio socialism, as uh, you know, Orville describes, has uh, gained very negative connotations. So what happens is that the term is changed. So there is English socialism. So if you say English socialism to someone uh, in the world of 1984, they have very, uh, you know, potent memories and they believe it to be very negative. And that's actually what, uh, that's actually the learning curve which Winston Smith, the main protagonist in that book takes. So, you know, he realizes that Ingsoc is an abbreviation of sorts for English socialism and English socialism was a failure but to impose that failure upon the common people to prevent them from thinking about rebellion against the state, what's happened is that a new language has been coined at doublespeak. So English socialism invokes all these negative memories in people's minds, but it's re uh, replaced with Ingsoc. Same concept, same principle, different word, and it does not have those uh, mental connotations, those negative memories in people's minds. So Ingsoc is just a way of leading them down the same track to their doom, but it's disguised much more better than what English socialism as a word could have offered the masses. So same product, different packaging. Yes, it's a case of stale wine, new bottle, to be honest. And uh, what happens is that uh, in 2084, somehow along the way, humanity rose up and threw away the vestiges of Ingsoc, but this is actually now replaced by religion. And this religion focuses on a man named Abi. So the entire world pretty much is deemed as being the kingdom of Abistan. And Abi is the earthly messenger of the god Yola. Now, what happens is that, you know, there are very strong authorities down there. There are churches on every street corner. There are, you know, almost like a... I guess, uh, you know, priestly classes who are inquisitors and they arrest people from doing wrong things. And, you know, like Ingsoc pretty much had people uh, focusing on their daily needs. Now, the fact was that Ingsoc was English socialism and socialism was destroying humanity at the time. So what's happened is that while Ingsoc has people, you know, trapped in socialism, in 2084, Abi if he exists, because this is never verified in the book whether he exists or not. It might be that he's a figment of the imagination. And uh, at the end of the novel, you actually do have this little uh, part between, you know, rebel cells and the main character having a talk with each other. And religion is being cast aside. Abi is losing his hold. And there is this short dialogue where it's actually, uh, you know, sort of uh, discussed that does Abi exist or not? And it seems he might have existed at one time, but the image of a very different man has been exploited in his name to sort of, you know, build up uh, the religious uh, theocracy in 2084. So anyway, what happens is that our main protagonist down there, he interacts with the world around him. You know, he's uh, had a mental breakdown. He's recovering in a, 
mountainous monastery and the you know mass of humanity is performing all these pilgrimages and every day abhi seems to remember that this is where yola gave me his darshan this is where yola gave me some verses this is where i was meditating that's where i was meditating and you have these pilgrimages and pilgrims there are pilgrims numbering a million or above who are born on the journey trek and who die on the same trek they never lead a fruitful productive life religion just basically has them ensnared so deeply in its you know tentacles and our protagonist has this you know thought come into his mind freedom liberty and he's stunned that you know he doesn't know what these words mean or you know what the concepts stand for he's just growing up thinking freedom is following abi but the fact is that his interaction with nature with the world around him you know one thing i like to point out here is no matter how totalitarian a religion or a state it has never been able to bend nature to its will for a long time and quite a lot of i would say perceptive individuals have taken inspiration from nature to rebel against uh, you know these entities which exist so what happens is our protagonist studies nature and just like raman and you know starts inquiring retrospectively analyzing what he's doing so does our protagonist as well so this is a massive thought crime and he takes this thought crime to its full end and at the end of the novel you have him you know there is a report it's obviously referring to the protagonist he's disappeared into the mountain ranges where abistan ends and the unknown world begins and it's the unknown world where he learns that atheists live down there people free from religion and that's where he decides to go to understand how they're living and what the history of abistan actually is rather than you know the religious tent provided to it now i'm not saying that the protagonist is essentially ramanand you know bhakt ramanand of gurbani but the point is the mental process is the same as the bhakts there is a massive thought crime going on down there okay so that was quite informative the entire story okay okay so okay let's talk about the second guru yes he's taking pilgrimages to the hindu temples in the mountains yep what do you think made him change his mind the story we have which has been pushed down to us you know which has come down to us is that one day he was walking by a river now he used to live in a village he was an entrepreneur of sorts by lena who later became guru anga then uh, he heard his neighbor reciting asadivar and he sat down and asked his neighbor what is it that you sing every morning you know well, why why do you sing these uh, words every morning and his neighbor informed him that this is what i'm singing and it struck a chord with pai lena that you know there is some truth to these words you know that we derive lessons live in kudrat and that kudrat is the true court of the creator because if you look at it on one hand just like but ramanand is going to perform pilgrimages to please god and you, you know eventually get to whatever god he believed in in the next world here we have pai lena doing the same and then when baba nanak's words come into his mind such a such a darbar he realizes that you know creation is the true court of the creator so why is he going elsewhere you know what is the reason and this mystifies him 
And to discover this reason, he decides to visit Kartarpur. And I guess it all started not from Asadivar, to be honest, that, you know, he was walking along, he heard Asadivar, or he was predestined to become a guru. I believe that he would have interacted with the world around him. Obviously, he would have to, to live his life. And these questions would have formed in his mind even before he found out what a Sikh was or who a Sikh was. Okay. From a Sikh's perspective, from the perspective of our own history, what's the first thought crime that was committed? From our perspective, our history, I believe that the first thought crime committed was when Baba Nanak refused the Jinnu. Yep, that's what I'm talking about. And I guess from Baba Nanak as well, if you if you look at it from one point of view, all these men whose words are in Gurbani, the divinity they claimed for themselves was on the basis of living the truth rather than claiming they had the truth. You see the fundamental difference? Yep. So they lived exactly like they wanted, you know, people to live, liber, uh, you know, freed and liberated from the clutches of, you know, religious dogma, etc., etc. But the thing is, somewhere along the way in life, and this happens to everyone, it probably happens to you and me, but we can't, you know, appreciate our reaction, given that, you know, we do not live in the times which Baba Nanak or Ravidas Freed and Kabir lived in. Along the way, Baba Nanak as a youth, we know when he was younger, he had a very uh, turbulent sort of uh, time while he was growing up. He was very, uh, you know, by today's standards, we would call him very stubborn, very uh, inquisitive, so inquisitive that curiosity killed the cat would have always been, you know, screamed into his ears. But whereas today we bury our, you know, inquisitiveness, our curiosity, you know, we think that, you know, our parents will be angry with us, we'll leave, uh, we will lose our parents' support, we'll lose our partner's love, etc., etc. I guess what made Baba Nanak so different was that he pushed it to its ultimate end, didn't he? He did. And from there, that thought crime turned out the day he refused the Janu. And then from there onwards, it was a whole history of thought crimes that if you committed a thought crime, you were essentially a Sikh. Well, you had to, you know, you, you had to go against the so-called traditions of those times, the belief of those, those times. People believe them, them to be 100% true. So your your very existence was a thought crime for them. And I guess the thing is, just like a spring, the more you press a spring, the higher it goes up. That's how thought crime starts out. That, you know, the more you try suppressing it, the more higher that thought crime goes up. And I guess Baba Nanak, if you look at Baba Nanak's system, now, you know, we had the Pandra Pak before Baba Nanak, and we had countless others like them. Um on Twitter, obviously, we put up those 21 quotes from Miyamoto Musashi. And, you know, they have a very similar, uh, they are pretty parallel to, you know, Bhagatadibani. There is a parallel sentiment down there. But the thing is that if someone asks why the Bhagats weren't able to establish something like the Khalsa, why no one else was able to, you know, start <clears throat> a way of life like Sikhi. And I guess the question you need to actually consider is that there were fundamental differences in the extent which the thought crime was, you know, taken to between the Bhagats and the Guru. Now, the, what the Bhagats did was, you know, obviously they committed a lot of thought crimes. You know, all of their Gurbani, all of the Gurbani we have today is one big massive thought crime. And that's why the Guru Granth Sahib is seen as being a dangerous scripture by many forces today. 
On the other hand, if you look at it, the bugs were content to teach their thought crime to others, but they were never, you know, interested in seeing whether those people progressed along with their thought crime or not. Musashi always said, you know, discipline yourself, perfect yourself. That's it. That's the goal in your life. But on the other hand, when you have men like the Sikh gurus, and this was something Edmund Calder and many other, uh, you know, like uh, Arnold Toynbee and many other, you know, individuals who studied Sikhi commented on, the gurus designed this system where you perfect yourself and then you perfect the world around you. You do not renounce the environment, the kudrat, which inspired that seed of thought crime within you, which germinated that, you know, seed of thought crime within you. So the gurus took their thought crime much further than the bugs. They did, yep. And if you look at the tale of Bhakt, Namdev, the one where they claim that some bird came to save him, but the reality is what he's saying is the guru's gyan saved him. We have discussed the Shabbat on the blog as well. So there is a full concise translation, proper translation. Uh, the name of the article should be laughing in the face of the gods. Bhakt and Namdev pretty much had no problems after that incident. Bhakt Kabir was, you know, chained up and thrown into the Ganges, but he survived. He had no problems after that. But if you look at the Sikh gurus, they confronted horde after horde after horde after horde of problems because, you know, what the rulers in the priestly classes felt at the time were that the 15 who came before them, they were content to perfect themselves and stay quiet. The problem people had with them was they did not agree with what society wanted them to agree with. But on the other hand, when the gurus came, they decided we are going to step out of that society and create our own society. So that old society obviously could not tolerate this new society which threatened to extinguish it. And it all started with thought crimes, decisive thought crimes as well. So as, the foundation, yep. As you said, the entire Gurbani is a one large thought crime. One large thought crime. Now, in today's time, if you look at it from the you know later missile period today onwards, what Sikhi has become is what Sikhi was never intended to be. <clears throat> no, 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 never. And today, once again, if, if you look at it from one point of view, you know Gurbak Singh uh, Kala Afkanda, controversial name, I know. But he actually wrote a little pamphlet which was supposed to be, you know, published into a massive book. And this was when they had, you know, Gurbilas Pachai Chevi. You remember the incident in around 2001 when it blew up all over the Punjab and the Sikh world regarding that text? Do you remember that? No, I was too young, man. Okay, so what's happened is that Jatedar Juginder Singh Vedanti, who was the head of the Kal around then, he had nearly been brought in after, you know, Pairanjit Singh was sacked. Um, he annotated and uh, oversaw the publication of Gurbilas Patshay Chevi. Now, in this text, there were some very controversial issues. There was one where that, you know, when Baba Gurdita was born, he had the face and beard of Guru Nanak and, uh, you know, um, Mata Nanki hid away saying that, you know, I'm nude in front of my elders and Guru Hargob in the grave and it had to clean him up. So it also claimed there was a silly topi uh, atop uh, Baba Gurdita's head and there were many other uh, such you know similar um, I guess insinuations made in the text which were not in line with Gurmat and 
what you know Gurbaksing wrote in this little pamphlet was that these texts are becoming you know the mainstays in Gurdwaras. And these texts are being used to argue how Sikhs should live their life and form current you know, renditions of the Sikh Hit Mariada. These texts are essentially being used to conceal Guru Granth Sahib because the Guru Granth Sahib is the strongest form of thought crime we have against the forces which have always tried suppressing humanity. And today those forces have corrupted Sikh history to the degree that Sikh history today it's, it's fine, you know, being a Sikh historian, but remember, Sikh history cannot supplant Gurbani. Hmm, interesting point. Yeah, and especially the history written in a mythological fashion, you know, so these were massive, you know, incidents and words which lead to massive debacles in Gurdwaras. I mean, you must remember that, you know, he was assaulted in Gurdwaras, had false allegations made against him. Many things were done to people like this. Now, obviously, they weren't perfect as well. Let's remember that as well. But everyone should have a forum to give their views. So if someone gives their views and you give the you know opposing viewpoint, if your viewpoint is strong, people will literally take it. Otherwise, when you start suppressing that viewpoint, it becomes more or less a matter of preserving thought crime for the other party. And that's how their views proliferate. We saw a similar sentiment with Professor Gurbak Singh and Gyanidat Singh during the Singh Sabha Lahir. You know how the Lahore, uh, they moved to Lahore, the Amritsar Sanatan Sabha tried suppressing them. At the end, we remember Professor Gurbak Singh and Gyanidat Singh. Most Sikhs today don't even know that Amritsar Singh Sabha existed. They don't, I think. No. So, so these process of thought crimes began from a long time. You know, in Sikhi, the thing is that even after Sikhi is established, we have thought crimes being performed. After the Guru era ended, lots and lots of thought crimes were done. And it speaks volumes to how Sikhs have always tried restoring pristine Sikhi. So <clears throat> would you have any examples in our recent history where thought crimes were committed? Uh, well, there are quite a few. Uh, I'm trying to give you the most relevant one. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I remember correctly, Gianni Park, Singambalavi, I think that was how that last name is said. He questioned the free the court sticker. Oh, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, yep. And then there was a uh, Gurbak Singh who questioned quite a lot and wrote those books as well. We have many people who have committed thought crimes, to be honest. I mean, a Kartar Singh historian, he, uh, Karam Singh historian, he questioned the Pai Bala Janam Saki straight away. And, you know, he established what Guru Nanak's right date of birth was. So many examples. But the thing is that today we are scared of touching those examples because we know that we also have to commit thought crimes. It no, it's not just that you personally can't bring yourself to commit a thought crime. It's, it's also the fear that if I say something controversial, I, I have too much to lose, including my own life. Mm, that's right. That's right. That's another aspect of this. I mean, physical assault is quite prominent in your community as well. <clears throat> Not just physical assault. They will simply say, okay, we have punished the enemy of the Sikh nation. <laughs> they <They'll be horrible. laughs> On the other hand, if you look at it now, <clears throat> we have Guru Nanak, and I guess Guru Nanak would have vetted the same atrocities which are visited upon people who you know, who commit thought crimes. I mean, 
debating with the siddhas now when he goes up in those mountains to debate with them there is no guarantee that they will let him come back alive no guarantee yep no guarantee he stands in front of baba he goes from corner to corner of punjab singing you know ballads against baba against the brahmins against the mullahs there's no guarantee that he will be left alive and i i believe that you know when baba nanak established kartarpur only the bravest of the brave came to live down there because even kartarpur would have had a sword hanging over it while baba nanak was still alive hmm yeah makes sense makes sense and i guess to preserve that awful guru arjan i mean from guru ramdas onwards i believe from guru ramdas onwards a embryonic sikh military was being trained and this military was trained to preserve that thought crime that was the essential ideology which animated that military and the tragedy down here is that you know we have made sikhi into a dogma but we have never retained that thought crime identity it has had historically hmm. okay and if you look yep just going a little bit away from the from the discourse here Yep. have you heard heard the name of there there's a guy i think he's in, he's in canada i think mm. uh his his name is abdullah abdullah gondal mm, no i haven't heard that name <clears throat> he is an ex muslim mm. and uh <clears throat> he actually started questioning his own beliefs when he moved to canada i think mm and today he's an outspoken ex muslim and uh, he was such a devout muslim that it, by his own words he wouldn't go to a restaurant with his family because there would be some music playing and music was haram and i guess if you look at it you know ibn warak who actually uh, fled to the united kingdom after the you know salman rushdie affair the satanic versus affair in pakistan yeah. because the reaction in pakistan to the book was quite uh <clears throat> aggressive would be the right term at this moment <laughs> you have him you have dr ali sina you have so many such people you know who sort of start questioning their past beliefs and if you look on their websites i mean dr ali sina's website just pretty much says that you know when he started interacting with the non-islamic world he realized that there was something to the non-islamic world which the islamic world did not have and he said it took him a long time a long time to actually you know expose within himself the sense of superiority he had for being a muslim you know that islamic civilization did this did that and he says that when he actually fully analyzed it took it all apart he saw that he had no strong foundations to base that you know sense of superiority on you know what have we achieved what have i achieved you know etc etc so on those grounds he decided to you know interact even further with the non muslim world and let it take him wherever it went see thought crime has not been studied so effectively you know we don't have a thought crime you know department in universities or a phd in thought crimes however well, there are some patterns to a thought crime as well you know it's a similar pattern to how a thought crime occurs <clears throat> and if you look at it the reputation those men those women have today 
the same reputation the gurus would have had at the time. The gurus, the bhakts, the gursiks, the bhakts, they would have had the same reputation at the time. Well, remember that the field of thought crimes is a nuclear minefield. It, it is a nuclear minefield. And it's Muhammad Latif who's the historian? Of? Of Punjab. He was a prominent historian, wasn't he, of the Punjab? I believe he was, and he wrote extensively on Sikh history as well. Yeah, back in the days, yeah. Yep. Now, he accuses, he insinuates that Banda Singh Bhadr was a Sikh supremacist. A Sikh supremacist. Okay. Yep. And from there, there are many Islamic sites which have extrapolated that many Hindu and Christian sites as well, that, you know, Sikhs are supremacists. That's why they carry the Kirpans. They, uh, you know, uh, seek to suppress others with the Kirpan. They're supremacists, etc., etc. So the thing is that anyone who committed a thought crime against the ruling party of the day, they've always been seen as tyrants, as, you know, supremacists, etc., etc. Now, in today's world, the thing is still the same. It's still the same. The only issue down here is that with Bandasing, Bandasing also committed a thought crime against the so-called Sikh clergy at the time, you know, which was beginning to emerge after Guru Gobind Singh. And so he was vilified. We have him vilified in the Suraj Prakash and the Panth Prakash, and these are all unnecessary false vilifications. However, on the other end, today we say the same vilifications as well, but let's just be careful when we analyze, you know, characters if the history books published today say that Donald Trump was a supremacist, we, our children in the future, need to establish why they call him a supremacist. This isn't the postmodernism, you know, deconstruction that different people have different truths. This is to, you know, get to that one fundamental truth or in the near vicinity of it. And we need to have that evidence to see what Trump did. Now, did Trump commit a thought crime? That's my first question to you. Well, he did many. He's, he's quite outspoken. Quite outspoken. Now, were these thought crimes beneficial? Because just remember, we are actually you know, treading unbroken ground down here. So let's just say there are two types of thought crimes. There's the positive thought crime, and then there is the negative thought crime. Well, it depends on which side are you sitting on. Which side you're sitting on. But if you look at it from a, from a more universal perspective, did his actions benefit a lot of humanity? Did his actions benefit a lot of humanity? Uh, I wouldn't say humanity. He, he, he's an American. His responsibility was towards his American people. I think they have benefited. To a certain degree, they have. But then when you look at the other aspect of that, you know, children in cages, which, you know, it's claimed that it started under Barack Obama, but that it, you know, grew quite large under him. This is another thing we have to look at. It is this inability to arrest the rot which he inherited. It's actually quite funny because we have just discussed, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, you call it English socialism, they just changed the name of it. Yep. Today, it's not children in cages. It's exactly the same thing, but they just changed the name. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing that's continuing. And uh, personally, I, I don't think that that was essentially a very bad thing to do. Yep, changing the, the name. No, 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 not changing the name. Oh, yeah. Keeping those people in the so-called detention centers. 
Okay. You you have okay. America is one country, hmm. and there is no shortage of people who do not have a good life in the world. They're probably more more than more than half the world's population. Yep. As a president, he has a moral responsibility to stop that invasion of his country. How many can America take, and why should America take them? Obviously, that's right. Now, of course, there's the unskilled matter. Now, this is something which has even come up in New Zealand again, that, you know, skilled migrants are being driven from the country. But the Jacinda Ardern government seems to be, you know, deliberately conflating the issue that we're getting more refugees in via pro-immigration. That doesn't really make it pro-immigration. But on the other hand, if you look at the Trump issue, would you say that keeping them in those conditions, you know, keeping them in those conditions, letting them come so far, rather than, you know, proactively destabilizing their roots outside the country do you do you really believe that can be justified you know kids being separated from parents etc etc yeah because uh, there is a massive issue of smuggling going on so separate the kids you know probably do a dna test to verify that these these kids are actually not being smuggled Mm -hmm. so it's 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 a bit of a 50 50 situation i guess where trump is concerned but then on the other hand you have to Look at it this way again. Would his thought crime be justified in the future or not? Well, that depends on who wins, who writes history. Hmm. And then whoever writes history, they will have people committing thought crime against them as well. Well, they, they will have, but uh, they will control, control the narrative. Today, there are people who believe that Hitler was not wrong. Hmm. But, the, but the victors wrote, wrote the history. So well, the victors you... wrote the history. But then I guess with with Hitler, we have the tangible example of the Holocaust. Well, uh, there is. But but at the very same time, imagine if Hitler had won and they would have actually made Stalin or Churchill the same evil because Churchill deliberately as a matter of religion policy was responsible for the Bengal famine, which killed about 4 million people. So it's... it's not about the number of people they killed, but the very concept of murdering people is what matters. Or nobody knows about the uh, starvations in Ukraine that, that was carried out by Stalin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's right. And I guess that's the thing down here that, you know, the thought crime process is committed even when we are not aware of it. You know, when we criticize our leaders or, you know, when we actually try seeing matters from another perspective. And... This is something Musashi actually told his students in his book of, you know, the five rings that always try seeing yourself as the opponent's general. And one of his students asked him, well, why would, why should we see ourselves in the position? And he said that if you imagine you're the opponent's commander, that the opponent is your friend, he's your soldier, you will be able to guide the opponent and know his internal workings, you know, whatever goes on. And our problem today is that when we choose our ally, we always refuse to look at it from the opponent's perspective. Well, you know that our side is right, our side is right, our side is right. But if you look at the gurus and the bugs, their minds were all over the place. They questioned just about everything. You know, if you look at the Fateh Nama, the Zafar Nama, Guru Gobind Singh actually gets into Aurangzeb's mind quite, you know, precisely. He actually looks at it from Aurangzeb's perspective but then he passes an impartial judgment on each and every line that why did you do this? Why did you do that? What need was, you know, for you to do this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 
this point about, uh, let's say, know your enemy. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, so the, the part of knowing your enemy is knowing the strengths, the weaknesses, and also the thought process of your enemy or your mm-hmm. adversary or your opponent. Yep. But don't make that a, an organic, you know, exercise. Make it pretty organic. You know, you're actually trying to find out your enemy's feelings and, you know, judge them. And this is something like, okay, so Aurangzeb is sitting in his court at Delhi and he gets a letter from the Hindu Pahari Rajay that you're the saviour of Hinduism, you need to crush Gobind Singh, who's made the Khalsa turned caste upside down, is breaking idols. And he turns his, uh, you know, decorated veteran commander, Said Khan, to go along with 25,000 men and uh, 50,000 men and either destroy Anandapur and kill the Guru or destroy Anandapur and bring the Guru and the Sikhs to Delhi, imprisoned. So what happens is they say that Said Khan sets out and then in the middle of the battle, he actually throws aside his sword, bows to the Guru and along with 25,000 of his men, he deserts Aurangzeb and becomes a Sikh. Yeah. Right. So if you look at Said Khan now, by all respects, by all accounts, this man, Said Khan, was quite a prominent general. He had risen to the top in a very short time. And he was also the brother-in-law of Pir Budusha, but both had their own, you know, differences between them. So what is it you believe that convinced Said Khan to commit that thought crime, which led to him becoming Said Singh and dying fighting for the Guru? Well, he, let's say he tried knowing more about Guru Sahib and everything. And then um, he, he must have tried to, let's say, psychologically understand what these infidels, these Sikhs were doing. Mm-hmm. And you see, historically speaking, the same process, you know, plays out against again and again and again. So we have Spartacus rising against Rome, the Gladiator Rebellion. And what happens is that, you know, when these gladiators start out with uh, Spartacus, you know, a majority of them are unpaid slaves, you know, destined to die in the arena. Some of them, the veteran ones, his commanders, are actually paid professional gladiators who have careers in the arena and who have much to lose by rebelling against Rome. And along the way, they're joined by many mutinous Roman soldiers, you know, and many officials as well. That's another thought crime that's going on down there. So let's, you know, put ourselves in the gladiator's position. They're slaves. They're fighting to be freed. It's not right to bring people to arenas and have them massacred by animals. Mm. Yep. Okay. Uh, I think we have to make clear the distinction Mm. between a thought crime and an actual crime. Yep. So what would you say is the difference? I think if you look at a thought crime, so generally speaking, we okay, we all know that, you know, a crime is an action and actions usually start from thoughts which are in the mind, transmitted to the brain where they become an intent, and then obviously we carry them out. We are agreed on that? Yep. So, okay, so if I'm sitting down there, and I decide that today I want to rob a shop. That's not a thought crime. Even though the law says I can't rob a shop, even though society says it's wrong, but there is no 
stringent imposition on me, stopping me from going and committing that crime. That's my choice. There are repercussions after I commit the crime, consequences. The thought crime is different. The thought crime is against imposition. Now, only two things, two elements. Okay, look, obviously we have families imposing on children, et cetera, et cetera. We have a lot of that. But in the general context, a thought crime is usually against a very powerful force, which is not under our control, which has already imposed itself on society. If I'm sitting down here today and I decide that everyone is going on a pilgrimage to various places of Abistan, but I'm not going because I believe them to be useless. That's a thought crime because I'm actually warring against a very unnecessary and unjust imposition, which does not allow me to achieve my potential as a human. That's what makes it unjust. Now, see, Ramanand goes down there and he does his rituals. His entire life up till that point had been wasted doing these rituals. You know, blowing kunches, striking bells, worshipping idols, bowing down, buffing in sacred water. His entire life had been wasted up till that point. All that life was actually measured by Ramanand as being wasted potential. He never got it back. A thought crime then is something which we commit when something or someone does not allow us to live as humans. Hmm. So there's a big difference. Yeah, sorry. Would you say that a thought crime actually benefits others? Okay, so that's getting back to the Trump issue again as well. There are positive thought crimes and there are negative thought crimes and they're judged after we perform them. You know, usually... It's what the world says about a man after they die, which is the best, you know, uh, account of how to judge that individual, what the final judgment on that individual's character, their achievements can be. But then on the other hand, you're asking about, you know, can thought crimes benefit someone? Okay, so yes, thought crimes do benefit people. If you look at what the Pads did, what the Gurus did, what the authors of Gurbani did, do they benefit us? Yeah, of course they do. Of course they do, right? But then on the other hand, if you look at it, there is a natural order of things. And someone who committed that first thought crime to bring caste into play, to make religion such a, you know, oppressive force, does that thought crime benefit us? Mm, nope. So let's let's just put it in a more sort of, a, you know, I guess more a clarified expression, a more clarified way. So there is a natural order of things. And when that natural order of things is perverted, degressed, derailed, regressed, you know, whatever you want to call it, that is imposition and tyranny. Okay, so that's uh, let's say that's the negative, the minus thought crime. But when there is a thought crime committed to derail that system, that is a positive thought crime. So it's like, you know, <clears throat> there is actually a theory that there are four types of lies, okay? So this was actually done by a psychologist in Europe, and I'll actually share this little uh, tale with you. It's going to be a bit controversial because I'll actually mention it in light of Sikh history. So there are four types of lies that can be characterized by naming them with four colors, right? So four colors. We have the black lie, gray lie, red lie, white lie. And there are two dimensions down here, you know. So as I mentioned, white lie. 
So a white lie is altruistic as we seek first to help others, even at some cost to ourselves. Gray lie is most of the lies that we tell are, you know, obviously gray lies. They're partly to help others and partly to help ourselves, right? So we both benefit. First one, we do not benefit. Second one, we both benefit. The first one, of course, is also beneficial, not to us, but to someone else. And then there is a black lie, which is about, you know, simple and callous selfishness. And then there is the red lie, which is about spite and revenge. So it's not the act of lying, which is negative or a transgression. It is the type of lying, which is judged. So let's, let's just take it a bit to a controversial end. Pahari Raje, go to Aurangzeb. What type of lie do they give him? They give him a red lie. Okay. So a lie which is full of spite and revenge. What happens when Guru Gobind Singh Ji turns up at Purin Masan's house? He expels the Guru from his house on false, uh, you know, uh, making up false stories. And that's the same with Kapura Brar, who actually refuses to help the Guru. Now, that's a black lie because that's about simple and callous selfishness. They wanted to have their own gain by betraying the Guru. Then there is the grey lie. Bir Budhusha has Guru Gobind Singh in his house when the Mughals turn up at his door. To save some members of his family and the Guru, he does a grey lie. And what happens is that, you know, ultimately at the end, even he's killed. And that becomes a white lie. So I would guess that a more best example of a grey lie would be, you know, what uh, Gani Khan and Nabi Khan did by making Guru Sahib Uchadapir. You know, obviously... The act of lying means concealment. So they concealed something, but they concealed it for just purposes. And then obviously there is the white lie, which is, you know, Virpir Budhusha kills his own son and allows himself to be killed for Guru Gobind Singh. You get, you get what I mean down here? Yep. So the act, it's not the act itself, which is in the negative. It is what, you know, that act is used for the purpose behind that act, which we are discussing down here. So, okay, let's let's just take it a bit more, you know, lewdly. Sex, right? Married couple do it, there is a children. If you do it against someone's, you know, uh, will, it's rape. Sexual encounter is used in both cases, okay? So it's a sexual act, a sexual encounter, both in where it is, uh, you know, uh, there is where there is consent and where there is non-consent. It's how it comes about and the purpose behind it, which actually defines the ultimate result, the ultimate consequence. Similarly, with the thought crime, you know, the thought crime essentially is not the crime, but what it's actually used for, which decides whether it's a positive thought crime or a negative thought crime. Our problem is that the word thought crime, the two words thought and crime are so heavily loaded with meaning when we put them together, we start believing them to be an act. But that's only 50% of the game. The other 50% is why we're committing that thought crime and why we're using that thought crime. So the intention matters. The intention ultimately matters. Now, you know, Ramanan's intention was to stop wasting time and get people away from, you know, pilgrimage sites. We also have a Shabbat of Pagd Kabir. Now, Pagd Kabir, you know, if you read Pagd Kabir's Gurbani, his Gurbani is very pointed. Have you noticed that? Yep, he uh, asks a lot of direct questions, which are, like, let's say, quite... Uh, right in your face. Incendiary, incendiary questions. 
in Sanctuary Christian. So he's writing your face down there, you know, straight away. So <clears throat> there's actually a Shabbat he has on Anga 1377. Right. So what he's saying is Kabir, cannabis, fish and alcohol, they who partake of them are said to annihilate all their spirituality and blessings accumulated as pilgrims. So obviously we have the, you know, traditionalist gang today arguing that this means you can't eat, you know, uh, fish, you can't, you know, take bung, even if it's for a medicinal purpose, you can't eat meat, etc., etc. We must all be vegetarians and have all these gardens in our houses. Leaving that aside, what Bhakt Kabir is actually asking, you know, now here's his thought crime straight away. What is more powerful, he's asking, your pilgrimage sites or the substances which you claim will nullify all the effects of going in onto a pilgrimage if you consume them? <laughs> you see what I mean? So, <clears throat> okay, here's the thing. If a Sikh goes to Darbar Sahib and comes back in the evening and has alcohol, the first thing someone will be thinking is, so why couldn't Darbar Sahib, you know, make an effect on him to get him away from drinking alcohol, from consuming alcohol? Think about it. You know, that's, that's something which comes into our minds. The second fact, though, is that, you know, at Darbar Sahib, if they read from Gurbani and explain that you have to make the effort yourself, that's an altogether different story. So it's the purpose. Again, we are talking about the purpose down here. Ramanan's purpose was to get people away from pilgrimage sites. Kabir's, obviously was to question the clergy and expose it that you guys are only using this for making a quick buck. See, like what Kabir did essentially, it's like, you know, if you go to the Detol company today and you ask them at their headquarters in front of the global media, you say that your product destroys 99.9% .9 of germs. And they say yes. And then you ask, what about the other 1%? Well, the, about the other 1%, you want them to pay more taxes. <laughs> you get what I mean down here, though? I do. Yep, and I hope the uh, listeners do as well, because essentially what it is, is that, you know, the thought crime is essentially an act, but it's why that act is being committed, which clarifies whether it's a good thought crime or a bad thought crime. And... This is something, this is quite a lot of abstract thinking down here, isn't it? Well, so it's quite a wide topic, I would say. Because, I mean, uh, my vision now has become that I'd seriously like to see a department of thought crime studies at universities now. Then, you, okay. If there was such a department, the very first thing they would do is ban thought crimes. Straight away, because, you know, you need to really... <clears throat> I guess the biggest problem we have down here is that we know what a thought crime is. We know how thought crimes come about. But there are no parameters for us to effectively, you know, define what a thought crime is. Okay. Uh, okay, hold on. We have the Olympics coming up, yeah? Yep. So let's say Mr. Brock Lesnar... Yep. Or somebody like him, physically very, very powerful person. Yep. Puts on a lipstick and some fancy hairstyle and declares, okay, I'm a woman now. I'm going to compete in women's boxing. Yep. And there's some guy sitting over there 
let's say, ringside and he gets up and yells, it's a man, it's not a woman. He'd be immediately thrown out. That's a thought crime? Or is it just an observation? <laughs> I guess thought crimes do start from observations. <laughs> Imagine this. In today's world, if there was a department of thought crimes at the university, the very first thing they would teach you is, okay, some people live this way, some people live this way. They have to live, to live their own life. So Mr. Brock Lesnar is now a woman. I guess you make a very valid point down there. You make a very, very, very valid point down there. And, you know, something I like to point out down here is that, you know, when a society becomes excessively liberal to the point of forgetting itself, that process, that period is followed by the imposition of the most rigid, most strongest tyranny that society cannot even begin to imagine. Yeah, so... Um, a, a, a very simple example. <laughs> yep. Let's say Brock Lesnar, when he was in the UFC, he decided to compete with female fighters. Yep. Absolutely no chance for the females. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no chance. And there's a, a I think, uh, I forgot the name of the person. I won't say uh, male or female, but it's ambiguous. They're going to be competing in weightlifting. And if you are a man, you're naturally, on average, more physically powerful than females. Your bone structure is a little bit different. That's how. Mm. That, that's exactly how police identify dead bodies that are burned beyond identification. Okay, so I'll, I'll commit a bit of a thought crime against this, right? No, hold on, hold on, hold on. Remember okay, the country yeah. you're in. Remember the country you're in. You might be arrested. <laughs> Let's let's just ask ourselves a question here first. Let's just ask ourselves a question here first. People alter their gender. There is nothing wrong with that. It's their choice. They can do whatever they want to. It's just like you know, if you want to smoke a cigarette, go for it. You know what the harms, what the harmful consequences are. Sure. You know that's what Bugt Kabir is saying to the people. You want to go down there and waste your money? Go for it. Go to pilgrimage sites. But just remember some of these questions I have. So let's just talk about this. There are many uh, individuals on Twitter who are Sikh, and there is one in particular who, uh, who alleged that Guru Nanak was a gender bender. And obviously, we have individuals in the United Kingdom who claim to be big Pantek Sevadars, and they like that tweet. So that was another shit show which started. Why did you like that tweet? And they couldn't justify it. But the first thing is, Guru Nanak says, Hukam is perfect from the start. And we're all part of Hukam from the day we were born, right? Yep. So why then would we... Like, okay, let's take me, for example. I'm born as a male under Hukam. Hukam is perfect from the start. The first step in Sikhi is to accept Hukam as being perfect. So why then would I try going against Hukam and altering my gender? Well, you got to have a talk with somebody who has already done it. But... That's the thing. That's the thing. And this logic can't be brought out anymore because then they start shouting that you guys are uh, oppressive. Sikhi is oppressive to trans people, etc., etc. And people just quieten down. But along the way, there will be thought crimes being committed. You know, people will be asking a lot of questions. Well, today, if, if, if you say that uh, if you are XX, you are female. If you are XY, you are male. That's a thought crime in itself. Mm, mm, that's right. That's right. Now, 
if you if you look at it historically, you know, the church believed that the solar system revolved around the earth. Yeah, the earth was the center of the universe. Yet Galileo and many others proved otherwise. But fearing for their lives, they decided to stay quiet. Many others were burnt at the stake. But ultimately, starting from the thought crime, the thought crime never went out. Now, what the you know church used to say was that, you know, we have the Bible. The Bible is perfect. End of story. You can't pursue any more you know, scientific innovations. That same church today relies on science, which was born out of a thought crime. You I'm see sorry. how tables turned? Yeah, I do. And yeah, I think the church apologized to Galileo, I think, in 1992 or something. A, a posthumous apology, just like us back in, you know, I think, 99, it was that they finally decided to uh, uh, reinitiate Professor Gurmukh Singh into the panth after he was, you know, expelled from the Kaltak for, expo uh, you know, opposing and exposing the Snap infections. But anyway, getting back to yeah. the story. <clears throat> just one, one, 100 years, that's it. It wasn't such a long time. Just 100 years. Yeah, just 100 years. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, if you look back at it, you don't want to be in that position where you oppose a thought crime and then rely on it. Hmm. You, you yeah. need to consider this quite carefully. You know, if you look at Jahagir, Jahagir opposed all the thought crimes done by Guru Arjun, Guru Har Gobind. Ultimately, however, he came to rely on Guru Hargobind, didn't he? Did. Shah Jahan came to rely on Guru Harai. And yep. then Shah came to rely on Guru Gobind Singh. Yep. So you see how these things turn out. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you kill the person who committed the thought crime. Once that thought crime is committed, the powers that be realize that others can commit it as well. So let's let's take the example of Pakdramananda again. So let's imagine Pakdramananda. Now the thing is, we don't know who this Pakdramananda is. As we clarified last time, he might, you know, he's probably not the Ramananda of classic antiquity. This is another Ramananda. Who knows what happened with him, whether he was killed, you know, what they did with him ultimately. But let's just imagine him. He's way walking. So he's actually, you know, going around to a mosque sees holy water down there, asks them what Makkah is. He's told this is what Makkah is. Goes to another center of worship, sees water and stones, sees another, you know, center of worship, water and stones, water and stones. And then he comes to whoever he worships and he sees water and stones. So here he's interacting with reality. He's interacting with the reality imposed on society by the powers that be. Okay, so a powerful ruling faction has imposed this reality on society and Ramanand is interacting with you know what that society has imposed so he's interacting with the imposition that same imposition is part of the natural world you know nature of creation and that leads Ramanand to reflect on the fact that what is the difference between what I believe to be reality and what others believe to be reality hmm you know, it's like uh, it's like The Matrix. You know, when they made that movie, The Matrix, there were so many other similar movies being made at the same time. There was a Matrix. Uh, there was Gattaca. There were so many other movies. And it's like being a character in all these movies. Here's a dystopia. There's a dystopia. There's a dystopia. There's a dystopia. What's the difference between all these dystopias? 
And that's what actually Ramananda asked himself. So what is the difference between all these realities? Have we missed the true reality while pursuing these realities? And that was his massive thought crime straight away. And I guess people who opposed him at the onset, who might have killed him, today, the descendants of those people rely on Ramananda exclusively to realize that all these practices they do, that the reality which religion gives them is never the reality. You're trying to nuke the only brain cell I've left. <laughs> this, this was going to be a very, very abstract topic, this, because this is what? just unbroken ground. You're actually forcing people to think that that's a good <laughs> thing or, or a bad thing. Only time will tell. Only time will tell. But the thing is that you you need to start thinking. I mean, when we... Okay, so here's another thought crime. Today we read Gurbani. I mean, I'm going to say it straightforward. Usually the pies have a face like a bander, you know, singing this almost wailful kirtan, which, you know, if you walk into a Gurdwara today, you sort of start thinking, whose funeral is it now? The way they sing their Shabad Kirtan. And this has created an atmosphere, a stereotype in our mind that Gurbani is so devotional it doesn't talk about this world or, you know, worldly matters. And there are many people who sit down and read Ramanand Shabad and they sort of think that, oh, what he's talking about is the exterior world. The exterior world is full of stones and water. Now, you know, question to those people why, you could, why he couldn't say this world is also full of trees and birds? They will never have an answer. But if you take away the devotional stereotype and you ask yourself, okay, how does Gurbani prove it's divine? Then when you read those uh, angs, those verses of Ramanand, then you realize that the divinity lies in the practicality of it. I mean, today we are in a very consequential age in which life is easy. You know, even in the third world, life is more easier than it was maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But if you think about it, compared to past centuries, life is easy. Now, let's imagine a family which goes on a pilgrimage, gets looted along the way, gets killed, gets murdered. For what? A lot of people actually die going on pilgrimages and road accidents. And, and road accidents. And, you know, obviously the disasters we have at Hemkun Sab. And if a surviving member hears Ramanand's verse and <laughs> has it explained to him, I bet you he would be beating himself for the shoe straight away. That what did I achieve? Well, you're committing way too many thought crimes, mate. It's something we need to think about, though something we need to think about and we need to establish a thought crime department especially in Sikhi we need to study how thought crimes have actually you know changed us altered us and how they begin we need to quantify thought crimes you know categorize thought crimes <laughs> you are sowing the seeds of tyranny my brother <laughs> well that's another thing down here that you can't be rid of thought crimes forever so the day a revolution succeeds the very next minute thought crimes start. Let me give okay. you an example. Oh, yeah, sure. Go for it. <clears throat> the founding fathers of America founded a country, yeah? Yep. And uh, let's say poor people from, let's say, primarily European countries moved to America, yeah? Hmm. But they also limited the vote to white men only. Yep. 
So using the same people, using the same principles, they say, okay, give me all the poor and downtrodden of the world. So this way, we will import the trash of the entire world into America. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, okay, you understand what I'm trying to make? What the yep, point but... I'm trying to make? Yes, yes. In the very same sense, if somebody tried to try to use Qurbani and says, uh, and they try to say, okay, we are Sikhs, we have no identity, Every, everybody's the same. So it doesn't yeah. matter if, if, if I marry uh, a Sikh girl or a Sikh boy or a Muslim or whatever, we are mm. all the same. So we have no identity, we have no loyalty. Yep. Is that what kind of thought crime is it? Okay. If, if I would, uh, yep. Okay. If a girl says that therefore I'm going to marry a Muslim. Okay, the thing is, people who commit thought crime, even if they're illiterate, they're smart enough to articulate what they mean in their words. You yep. can't misinterpret those words unless you have an agenda. Impartially speaking, if someone sits there with an impartial mind, they will discover what the truth is anyway. Now, we accept that, right? Why do we forget other other verses of Gurbani where it says that, you know, all other faiths make man into a beast? Would a Muslim accept? No. Would they say that, okay, we will leave aside our identity if you're going to go marry a Sikh? They will turn the world upside down trying to convert you. So, that, so that's the thing. That's the thing to understand straight away. A thought crime has a benefit. A thought crime preserves our essence as, you know, humans. You know, our diversity, our individuality, our identity. Thought crimes are, you know, also rooted in identity. But if you want to dissolve that identity into something else, obviously that's a negative thought crime. I mean, come to think about it, let's just go back to Ramanand again. He could have just sat down there and said to his mind, oh, look, you're asking me that, you know, why is it that stones and waters are all over the place? But, you know, all religions lead to the same uh, same God. So shut up and, you know, let me bang out my beats here in the name of God. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, do you know those people who say that uh, our scriptures, well, their scriptures say that uh, the truth is, shall be persecuted so if you speak against this it's just proving up a scripture to be true yep <laughs> you see the paradox i see the paradox and i think that's a that's a weak excuse though that you know if you speak against us you know we are right i mean <laughs> that's a pretty no, weak no, excuse that's something no, no. that pres- yep it's actually not weak hmm. so they say that look our scripture has came true I think the thing is that we today, the globe we live in, 99% of our you know, humanity, excuse the term, are woke flakes. Woke? Flakes. So oh, you have a... Okay, hold on, you, hold on. Yeah. You're not using the word snowflakes because snowflakes are white? No, 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 that's not why I'm using it. The reason I'm using woke flakes is that this is the ultimate expression of being a snowflake. Woke flake. What degree of woke are you? I'm not personally woke to the extent that, you know, I mean, 
that I would hold up a, you know, we love animals sign at the meat department at my local grocery store. But let's let's just sort of stick to the topic here because um work well, flakes. You are a New Zealander. You, you probably love animals. Yep. In my you, stomach. You have, no, you have a repetition. <laughs> now, the thing is a woke flake is someone who has the tendency to accept things at face value or believe in conspiracy theories, right? So if someone says to them, you speaking against us is proving our point, our scriptural point, they're going to bow down in the name of political correctness. Right? Mm. And that 1% of humanity primed for intelligence thinking who have made themselves intelligent, they're going to stand there and ask themselves, well, wait a second, how is them speaking against you proving that you're right? So, you know, back when the Black Lives Matter uh, protest started, we had all these statues being torn down in Europe of you know, an colonial, colonial yeah. figures, etc. Yeah, yeah, of course I remember. It's, it's, it's still an ongoing process. Yep. So using that woke flake logic, can we say that those figures were right? That's why people are today opposing them? Hmm. Okay. Interesting question. You, you see how the logic turns around? Yeah. You, you want to be, when you commit a thought crime, you know what makes a thought crime so deadly for people? The fact is that the person who commits the thought crime, who takes it to its most ultimate, most formidable degree, most formidable manifestation, that individual has enough logic to spot them that you can't corner them, right? So a woke flake does not commit a thought crime. <laughs> you, you understand what I mean? So here's a woke flake. And uh, okay, okay, let's, let's just take it for example. So, you know, Today, um, give me the name of a very famous colonial figure. Just do it. Give me one name. Columbus. Okay. <clears throat> the first one so, started all. Yep. So here's Columbus sitting at a table. So let's let's say it's a round table. Everyone's sequel down here before people start accusing me of you know debilitating history. So we have Columbus on one side of the round table. Oh well, yeah, one quadrant of the round table. Let's say that. And on the other side, we have a woke flake. And the woke flake is sitting at the table. And the woke flake is saying to someone else sitting across from them that the fact you're opposing me tearing down a statue of Columbus means that I'm right. Okay? So let's imagine it's a guy like me sitting down there who's opposing that. And, you know, when they say that, and I just, you know, stay quiet and turn to Columbus. So Columbus now turns around on his chair and he asks them, so if you are saying that Amarjeet opposing you makes you right, that means you opposing what I did makes me right. <laughs> and the and the and the voik flake on the other end, Agledi Puri You know, so people like Baba Nanak, you know, the gurus, the pugs, you know, the putts, the you know. The authors of Gurbani and others like them, you know. So let's say, you know, Banda Singh Bahadur, Professor Gurmukh Singh, all these individuals, great Gursikhs, you know, Gurmukhs, they were the sort of people who would be sitting in a discussion. The other party would be raving and frothing at the mouth, asking 101 questions. 
And then, you know, someone like Professor Gurmukh Singh would only ask one question, one question, and that one question would leave the other guy screaming for the rest of their life. If they're on, honest. If they're honest. If, if they're honest. See, Professor Gurmukh Singh's question left Kam Singh Bedi screaming for the rest of his miserable life. <laughs> you know? Even when he got Professor Gurmukh Singh expelled from a Takht, he couldn't sleep at night because his questions kept on haunting him. Bhakt, Kabir went to the mullah and he asked him, mullah, so I need to get circumcised. And the mullah said, yes. So what happens to my wife? And that's when the mullah was stumped as well. Yeah, uh, I, I remember this Pankti. Yeah. Yeah, you, you get it? We have Bhakt, that's right. Hmm. We have Guru Tegbah, the down there sitting in Delhi, and he asks Aurangzeb, and you know, Khwaja Muhammad Masoom, that your Prophet wasn't able to convert the entire world to Islam. What makes you think you guys will have any success? Even when they cut his head off, they were left screaming for the rest of their lives. And Guru Tegbah, they died laughing at his own, you know, incredulity, you know, that look, I asked them such a damn smart question, uh, you know, that they might cut my head off and put an end to me but they will never be able to put an end to the fact that I got right into their mind, into their brains. A thought that... crime is only successful when your thought crime enters the opposer's brain as well. Okay, uh, I think we haven't uh, touched on the thought crimes in the ancient world. Socrates. Socrates, we have many examples. You know, we have many examples coming to you. Socrates... Plato, you know, even in the historical world, you know, we, we just mentioned Galileo. But the thing is that if you commit a thought crime, take it to some great degree. The people who, you know, stick to their beliefs and die committing a thought crime, they are accepted as being the martyrs. Uh, they're accepted as being martyrs long after they're gone, when, people, when those thought crimes actually manifest themselves in the form of belief that people understand them. That's right. That's right. Now, coming back to the Columbus example, you know, it's a round table. They can keep on going round and round with me all day long. We won't prove a point. But when you have strong logic on your side, that's when you leave people screaming. <clears throat> now, you know, in New Zealand, we have the ACT Party, and it's headed by a very professional politician named David Seymour. Seymour, yeah. Yep. And when all these, uh, <laughs> you know, Incidents were going on of, you know, you know, defacing colonial monuments, etc., etc. You know, he was cautioning restraint that, you know, obviously, you know, lots of injustices have been done, but we need to learn from these injustices as well. Move the monuments to museums, build something constructive, but don't go around, you know, demolishing stuff and, you know, breaking the law because that sets a negative precedent. He left the entire parliament screaming in frustration. His logic was so great. So all the people who opposed him, he actually managed to get into their heads, right? That's that's the type of individuals, you know, people who commit thought crimes are. I'm just trying to imagine Madam Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. I, I, I know that you are a hardcore fan of her. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> if, if she sneezes, you sneeze twice. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact is, you know, getting back to what the thought crime issue was, you know, okay, let's just keep her in here as well, whatever. 
the fact is that when you commit a thought crime, you're also in a power in a weaker power than the opposing party. You're in a weaker power than the opposing party. Yeah. So you see what I mean? You're weak. You have nothing to show for yourself except your words. And I mean, <clears throat> if you look at Park Dravidas, Park Dravidas wasn't a millionaire, was he? No, he was an individual. Yeah. And uh, we had this guy from the UK put it up on Facebook, you know, in our group that, you know, Park Dravidas was born in a well-to-do family. He suffered caste oppression. And I asked him, um, you know, one thing. He said, yeah, do you see the sort of the juxtaposition here? And he said, what? Born in a well-to-do family, but suffered caste oppression. And he got my point straight away that, you know, lower castes weren't allowed to be rich. Fact was, Pak Dravidas was born in a little chopri. He died in a chopri. You know, a uh, squatter's hut. But even, yep, but even a king, even kings who controlled over 40 kingdoms feared to come inside his house and look him in the eye because his logic would leave them screaming for the rest of their lives. I'm just uh, okay. My my brain brain tell me it's the it's the confused screaming meme. Hmm. You know what I mean? A guy is you know it's a meme on the internet. Yep. Confused screaming. Yep, that's exactly the state of the people who come up against thought crimes. <laughs> <clears throat> now. Baba Nanak, Guru Granth Sahib, there is so much be done of it every day. People try, you know, sealing it away, ignoring it. I mean, suffocating it under Ramallahs. You know, they try doing so much. Why do they try doing that? Because Baba Nanak's thought crimes are still making them scream. Yep, just worship it, don't understand it. Now, you know what I was like a few years back, you know, believing in all these mythological tales, sharing them around and being a, you know, good traditional Sikh person. <clears throat> Until Baba Nanak's thought crimes got into my head, I'm still screaming. I admit it. I confess it. I'm still screaming internally every day. It's not just screaming, man. It's, it's super cringe. The things that I personally used to believe and do, those things that... That would keep you up at night because they're so cringy. And that's why Gurbani is the most dangerous element, the most dangerous thought crime ever produced. What could be an example of a thought crime today? Let's not mention it because you live in a nuclear minefield. Well, not just a nuclear minefield. Okay, but let's let's just talk about it. So you want a thought crime today? A good example of a thought crime today? When we do our episode on Pai Taru Singh. Oh, yeah. And, that's... and what ultimately happened to his kakars? Well, should I, should I, let's say, move to a different region, probably in the mountains, and hide myself before we do that episode? As long as, you, as long as you have access to Wi-Fi. Uh, okay, so Wi-Fi... Oh, look, the corona thing going on, so probably can't move out. <laughs> the thing is that the person who commits a thought crime, they're like the barge, you know, the falcon, the hawk. They fly high, they don't give a damn about what happens to them. Ultimately, they live life to its fullest, and that's why we commit thought crimes, because they allow us to live 
as we want to live. Well, the clause of honesty comes here. If, if some thought enters your mind and, and you don't get an answer for it, how honest are you about that thought to yourself? To yourself. Are you going to pursue it in search of truth or, let's say, satisfaction to some extent? Are you going to take it to its logical conclusion? Do you have the guts to do so? There is always the precedent, but it's hard. People's legs start trembling just thinking about it. Well, not just that. Uh, it's, 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 inter it's mental torture for oneself. It is mental torture for oneself. And that's why I guess, you know, Baba Nanak says, you know, you need to get your own intellect, your own head, put it on your palm and then come on his path. That this is my old intellect, give me the new intellect. The mental battle is bigger than the physical battle, yeah? That's the thing. If you win the mental battle, you win the physical battle. You know, people who commit thought crimes, they're the ones who, you know, Gurbani says, they're the real Jindashids. And not the, you know, people in white who walk like ducks. <laughs> not just ducks. Lame ducks. <laughs> Lame ducks. Yep. Lame ducks. Thank you for listening to us. That's all for today. Vahigruji ki Vahigruji ki